lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and HowToLoveAHuman.com, where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Ed, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover How to Love a Human. Hey everyone, today on How to Love a Human, I am with Ed. Hey Ed, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Okay, I'm going to start with my non-researchy question first. Are you feeling human or human as fuck today? Half. Yeah, I had to look that up. So, <laughs> you know, I know you asked that question, so, you know, I have to. I had to look it up. I uh, wasn't going to ask my kids, uh, but so, yeah, I think a human as fuck, uh, usually that's, that's how I'm usually feeling. How, tell me the difference for you. Cause everybody has a different take on what human versus human as fuck means. Well, you know, I think for me, it's just kind of being more, uh, in touch with what's going on in the moment and, uh, you know, connected with other people and, and, uh, um, you know, just being pretty centered, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of feeling feeling that way or just kind of passing time, just, you know, being intentional, I suppose. Got it. So that feeling centered, connected, and intentional takes you there. You prefer human as fuck, then it sounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I definitely get that. I think a lot of people are describing it that way, like more mindful of the moment, more aware of who they are, where they are. Right. And the main difference then is that when you're human, there's less intentionality, less vulnerability, I wonder. Just kind of going about the day. Yeah, I guess so. More automatic, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, less, less, um, miss a lot. You know, you just kind of got to get some stuff done. For me, it's a lot of time in the van getting kids back and forth to what they need to do. Got it. Um, so a lot of that is can be um, autopilot. Autopilot. I get that. So yeah. I'm going to jump in to share your most salient identities with me. Who are you? Well, I think, you know, uh, probably uh, it's, it's, it's rooted in, in my upbringing as a first-generation immigrant, mm-hmm. uh, as a son uh, of immigrants who are, who are from Latin America, Colombia. You know, I think that's who I am. I'm a family member. I'm a father. Um, I'm, you know, a husband, a brother, um, you know, the... I'm just relational Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what my relation is to other people. And when I'm clear about that, I think things are a lot, a lot um, smoother for me. It's those people. I don't really know where we are at that I struggle with them, but you know, in terms of, of my connectedness with people, I think I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, family in some ways, how they fit in as part of either my extended family or my you know I got enough kids to work <laughs> they, there's a lot of them <laughs> right so you led with uh, first generation immigrant can you break that down for people who might not know what those generations mean 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people count the generations differently. Okay. So literally, my mother and father came to the United States and had me, and I was born in New York. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was the first first of my family to negotiate everything in the United States. Got my it. parents were here a year, I think, and then I was born. So um, kind of we learned a lot of stuff together. But um, I was the first person, so I consider myself first generation in the sense that, that I grew up here. Other people might say my mother was first generation because she immigrated here. Mm, but it was mm-hmm. pretty simultaneous, act, uh, actually. So I was the first one to go through, negotiate school, learn English and Spanish at the same time, that kind of stuff. Okay, got it. I did, yeah, I do understand, I did understand it differently before, so I'm happy you clarified that for me. But because it was almost like, simultaneous you guys were making that transition and that acculturation process together it felt like both of you might occupy first generation or what would she be called if you would be first generation right i mean it just depends on who you talk to and how people define these things but you know my mother and my father uh came over uh in their 20s and they had already lived all the you know their adult all their lives in in Colombia. So they literally came to the U.S. and started over. Gotcha. When was the first time you went to Colombia? Oh, I think like I was one. Okay. Uh, I I went back to be shown off to my family and stuff. (laughs) I was the first first person in my generation on my mother's side and the first male. Oh, uh, which was yeah. a big deal mm-hmm. since my grandfather had had there was no males in my mother's generation so oh wow yeah it was a big deal um for you know for traditional hierarchical patriarchal society uh mm-hmm. you know it was a big deal to have that son um and uh yeah my mom often will say that she was the only one who did it because her sisters had had all girls so wow it was, it was a deal <laughs> So did you feel special growing up as the only male in that given cultural context? My brother was born after me. Okay. uh, Yes, there was also, there was always a sense of of specialness and some entitlement, Mm. you know, which I suspect, this is suspected even then, wasn't really earned, but, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, you were the males and that was, that was special. To, to be fair to my mom, she never did the, um, the whole like Latin Prince thing where you have a kid who is, um, you know, who is kind of spoiled and everything. It wasn't like that. Okay. It was just kind of, you know, you're special, you're going to carry the name and that mm, kind of stuff. Got it. And then some of the other identities you mentioned that stand out, all of them in relation to family. So husband, father, um, brother, tell me about what makes those stand out for you. Well, uh, you know, as, 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 you know, I just turned 50, so that's, I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I turned 50 in October. So as, as, as an older person, um, I think of the things that endure and legacy and, uh, and those things will be, you know, my children and those people that I've been fortunate enough to have as, as, uh, as students, these are the folks that, um, you know, that you, you love and you take care of and, and you work with, and then they go do their thing. 
So to me, I think that that's what's, that's at this point in my life, that's what seems to be more important when I can, you know, some, this might sound weird to people, but you know, 50, once you get to 50, it's like, you know, if you retire at 65, it's only 15 years. Mm, mm-hmm. And when I was, you know, first graduated stuff, I was like, oh, I got the rest. That's a long time, right? <laughs> but now it seems it seems closer than ever. And so the question of what what have I been doing? What am I going to do? What's going to make it? What what am I in 15 years from now? What am I going to care about? Mm. And you know, I think I mentioned to you that I don't like to engage in a lot of. Uh, like do a lot of meetings and I don't like to do a lot of stuff that waste my time because I think when I look back, I'm not going to say, you know, damn, I wish I could have gone to another meeting. Right. 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 So I'm real focused on, on relations. Uh, you know, my, my, my students, my family, those people that I care and, and, and love, um, to make sure that they're doing all right because that's, what's going to endure. The things that last, the things that have resonance with you, are what did I leave as a legacy? Mm-hmm. Who cared about what I did, and who did I care about while I was doing it? That's right. Mm-hmm. Any other identities that stand out to you that you may not have mentioned? So, you did. You brought up age, even though you didn't bring it up in the initial right. context, like being fifty and what that means. What about like ability status, sexual orientation, gender identity? religion, spirituality, things, other aspects of people's identity, any social location. Yeah, I think that, that, that you know, being Latino, um, mm-hmm. and that has a lot of different meanings, um, mm-hmm. because uh, when my parents immigrated from Colombia, uh, they went to New York, where there's a lot of other uh, Colombians there, yeah. and then they moved to Atlanta, where there weren't hardly any other than our family, and so we grew up I grew up in an environment where my friends were Cuban, Mexican, Venezuelan, um, Puerto Rican. So there was another identity that was just this more Latino, which is mm-hmm. more generic, pan-ethnic, mm-hmm. that connection with people, that, but it wasn't necessarily a national one. Okay. So, um, How I does that make the difference for you? that, that I, I can identify with and is very important to me personally and professionally. Um, but in terms of a lot of the other identities that you mentioned, a lot of them don't really come to mind unless I'm teaching or unless I'm, you know, conducting therapy or whatever, in which I have to be aware of these identities in relation to my clients or mm-hmm. the people I'm working with. But like ability, other than getting old, <laughs> there is no, I really don't ever think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sexual orientation, uh, I think as a parent, I think about it uh, because my children, as they get older and discover who they are, and, um, you know, I think I, I, I want to make sure that I'm accepting and, and that they don't look back and later and say, well, Dad, I remember the time you said this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm real aware of orientation as, as it's developing in them for, for myself, it was, you know, I, I figured the way I view other people is for me, it was always, it was always the way it was. And, yeah. and so I figured that's the respect I give other people is that, you know, I figure I can understand what it's like to, to, um, to feel a way 
that you are, like, for example, that I am straight, mm-hmm. um, that, that was never a question. So I yeah. can imagine for other people, you know, some people may question, other people may be completely um, sure of who they are. And that, to me, I can, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. And as you think about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a dad, right. and watching your kids grow up, it comes into question, like, am I living the values that I want them to to live? And am at the same time, am I accepting of who they are across all their potential sexual identities? Right. Yeah. And uh, am I, am I being true to my values? Am I, you know, making sure I'm not making any jokes or, mm-hmm. or implying that they need to be a certain way or, or just, you know, am, am, am I doing this parenting thing so that, well, I won't be perfect. Right. At least I'm trying not to give them messages that later I'm going to have to apologize for. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get that. And I wonder about the intersection of your Latino identity and this conscientiousness about this awareness. I know, so for everybody who doesn't know, Ed was my advisor when I was a doc student, an excellent advisor, and my my research was on uh, Caribbean men and sexual health. And some of the findings and some of the research proposed these stereotypes about men from Latino and Caribbean culture, about heterosexism and homophobia. And I wonder if you ever interface with that and think about, I don't want to perpetuate this stereotype or if it feels like I am who I am regardless of the stereotypes that are imposed well well I mean I think and thank you for the compliment uh, about being a good advisor I think that um, you know uh, it's, that is again relational it's exciting to see um, students take off and do their thing and, and develop into their own professionals I think more and more I'm convinced it's a lot like um, parenting mm-hmm. without um, making that other person, you know, um, without being parental in a negative sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is helping someone and letting them do their thing and being proud of them, but then also, you know, letting them shine. Not It's not always about me. Right. So, um, you know, that that's, uh, that's important. So, um, you were asking me about like the cultural implications or yeah i was i was kind of digging into this idea this stereotype that men from Lat- like latino men and caribbean men based on my study have these stereotypes right. about being heterosexist or homophobic and i wonder if your conscientiousness about what messages you communicate to your kids are in some ways informed by knowing that these stereotypes exist about your cultural background yeah, and so I also, you know, have a uh, – so my children are negotiating a couple of different cultures. Mm-hmm. My stepchildren are negotiating even more different cultures. And so I think it's called this embeddedness. So, yeah, definitely the stereotypes um, are there uh, about um, who Latin people are, um, who white people are, um, you know, it, it, there's there's a lot that's swirling around there. Yeah. I find myself that I, I was very fortunate to have um, my mother, who was very um, 
very empowering, a great role model for me. Um, and you know, there was no putting women down. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because she was, she was, she was the rock. Uh, and, um, she, she did everything, uh, for us and made sure that we, that we succeeded in the world. And, um, so uh, she didn't have any tolerance for any type of, um, of, um, sexist thinking. Mm-hmm. I grew up in an era in the eighties and stuff where there was not a lot of awareness and, um, there was rampant, um, you know, stereotyping going on about a lot of different things, yeah. you name it, Colombians, mm-hmm. gay people, those kinds of things. And so out of that, um, you know, we, we, we did the best we could. Um, but you know, it wasn't always, uh, very enlightened until yeah. I went to school and studied and was more, uh, had firsthand experience with people and was just more aware of, of what these stereotypes were. Um, and going away to college definitely was that first uh, step out of like the Catholic school bubble that mm-hmm. I had lived mm-hmm. in for, for uh, 13 years um, previous in going out to college and actually meeting people from all different perspectives and really, you know, shattering those stereotypes. But because I wasn't around a lot of Latino people other than my family, um, the, you know, I didn't really internalize a lot of the stereotypes mm. about what Latin people were and, 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 and weren't. So, um, you know, that definitely came out later when in my work as, as a psychologist, as a professor and stuff, and more awareness of what people think about Latin people. And also the part of the United States that I live in made a big difference. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all of that is true. There, I was aware of the stereotypes. Um, and I guess for my children, I feel like it's important for them to, um, to be aware of them. We kind of make fun of them. Uh, you know, I'm just kid around about some of the things mm-hmm. about being Latin, but, um, but also a lot of the strengths that, yeah. that are there too. You said something that stood out to me. I was wondering about if you, I think there was a point in time where you said you moved from New York to Georgia. I don't remember how old you said you were when you made that move. How old was you? You said five. five. Okay. And that at that point you went from one of many people of various ethnic backgrounds to was it, were there fewer in Georgia or none? Were you the only one? Well, so that, yeah. So in New York, obviously New York's New York. In the yeah. section that we lived in, there was a lot of Colombian immigrants. So we were in this kind of Colombian bubble. We moved to Atlanta and started going to, to Catholic schools in Atlanta, in Atlanta back in the late 70s. Oh, wait, no, early 70s was a whole different place than it is now, but there was an emerging Latino community that mm-hmm. was centered around the Catholic church, but also very, there wasn't necessarily one country that people were from. Okay. Got it. But got it. in school, it's kind of within these layers that at school, I was one of the very few, uh, Latin kids, uh, Colombian kids, Latino kids at school. So yes, definitely kind of a working class, middle class, Irish, Irish American, um, Catholic environment. So there was only a few of us, but within that social circle, 
you know, that's the people that we would do stuff with and go to parties with. And those were kind of the, that was our circle, Mm -hmm. but we existed in the larger big Catholic circle that was mostly, uh, mostly white. Got it. So it was an Irish Catholic school, but you had a smaller group of people who was the community, your family, your people that you got it. Did you feel like you had to negotiate? In a previous interview, someone talked about negotiating whiteness as a black man. I'm wondering how that your experience of negotiating whiteness in that space was as a Latino. Yeah, I mean, I think it it was um, definitely an issue because I think for um, for. He, uh, for Colombians in particular, uh, we went from being kind of like the model minority within mm. the, the, within the Latino community to being drug dealers and gangsters and, Got it. and the worst of of Latino uh, community. So it, it was kind of a breakneck, um, you know, um, in terms of what it meant. But I think uh, academic success was definitely totally couched in, in white terms mm, and okay. behavior, uh, the behavioral norms, what you should be doing, what you should be wearing, everything was dictated through through that. And I think, I, I mean, I acutely remember people making fun of my parents' accents, the mm. food we ate, uh, the type of house we lived in, um, all those things. Um, so it was, it was negotiating within this big subordinate identity of Catholicism within Catholics, there were different types of Catholics and, and, you know, to be successful, you were, you were really, um, depending on who you were talking to, you were supposed to kind of homogenize yourself and, and go towards this ideal, which later I can look back and say, well, that was a very white European, yeah. um, idea, white European Catholic idea of what, what it means to be successful, smart, well-behaved. Um, the exception to that was, though, and I remember this very, very, very clearly, was the Spanish teachers, because mm. the Spanish teachers were all Latinas. And the Spanish teachers had a very definite idea that all the Spanish kids should be taking Spanish and should speak <laughs> it correctly and should be dancing salsa. And, should, and they were like... <laughs> they were serious about that. <laughs> And so that actually really pushed me away um, mm. from from that whole. I, I, I wouldn't take Spanish. I didn't want to speak Spanish to them. I experienced them as very like kind of cultural enforcers, and mm. for some reason, I just wasn't doing it right. And it was easier to um, to just not. Uh, that didn't mean I didn't see them and stuff. But you know, I didn't take Spanish actually until I was in college. And I decided to take it because I just didn't know any of the grammar and stuff. Having grown up speaking it, um, I didn't know how to write it. it. I didn't know how to construct the grammar and stuff. I knew how to say things, but I didn't know really how to do it. So at any rate, there were two forces that were actually both working in the same direction to kind of push, um, you know, kind of this, uh, uh, you weren't, good enough on the one hand and on the other hand your own folks were telling you you weren't good enough either mm-hmm. that's how mm-hmm. i took it mm-hmm. that resonates with me so much i remember not being black enough 
as dark chocolate as I am and also not being white clearly and feeling like, well, where do I fit in in this middle ground? Because I kind of just want to be me. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if you experienced this, but for me, looking back in reflection, but not really having the language for it then, there was a some type of awareness that to be associated with blackness, and I wonder if you experienced this, about being Latino was less than. And so there, I wasn't going to have access to the things that I was seeking academically or socially if I were to go more on that side and, and norm myself more with those, with those cultural mores. Yeah. I mean, definitely there was the, um, I think, um, you know, that Latino identity was, was correlated really high with marginality Mm -hmm. and that I was going to marginalize myself. The more that, um, the more that I would identify that way at school, uh, and so the, the, the simple answer was not to, yeah. uh, and, um, but yet all of our friends and who we spent time with after school. So there was, it was, uh, it was a division in terms of behavior in the classroom. And then once you went home, you were in a different world than mm-hmm. my mom, like a lot of Latina moms, you know, you, you know, you, you weren't doing sleepovers and you weren't doing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you were you came, it was like coming home and that was, you were immersed in the culture until you went back to school the next day. So that was the kind of dual life that I got used to leading, um, with the understanding that deaf people at school had some definite negative ideas about what my home life was like. And like I said, would make fun of my parents, uh, accents or, the way we dressed or whatever. I mean, it was, you know, there was this idea that, that this, this difference was not good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk, uh, turn a little bit. What does love mean to you? Well, I think that is also a function of being older, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, um, you know that I've been divorced. Um, you know that um, you've been remarried, and um, and I'm living with kids now, going into their seventh year of living in the, the post-divorce world, mm-hmm. and kind of watching them and, and trying to make sense of it all. So I think uh, you know my wife uh, also went through a divorce that was pretty traumatic. Yeah. And, um, so I think we constantly talk about what love means and how it's different than, you know, maybe our initial thoughts of Mm. what love and marriage Mm -hmm. would be and thinking about how to love each other and thinking about how to love the kids. Obviously, you know, that that's on my mind, but you know, we, we think about that because we have, we've lost and lost big. Um, so when you say loss big, can you just capture what that means? Because it seems powerful when you say we've lost big. Well, we lost a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, lost a lot of, of, of things. Um, you know, uh, lost time with my children, which yeah. is probably, you know, the thing. I, I, I constantly have discussions with my daughter, um, who's about to become a teenager, 
And she, and, and, you know, I tell her, you know, I never wanted to be a part-time parent. Yeah. I didn't sign up to be a part-time parent. Now I'm lucky and not lucky. I guess it was intentional for me to have at least half custody, but okay. half is still not what I, what I wanted. And it's not what I signed up for, but there you go. Mm-hmm. So I think lost big is, is losing these ideas of what you thought life was going to be like. Yeah. Uh, the um, materially, you know, a divorce in many cases uh, is financially disastrous. Yeah. So, you know, spending a whole lot of time building something up and 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 then trying to play catch up um, financially, uh, still recovering. Yeah. Um, so I think there, there is a, a sense of like, what is love? And, and, you know, at first thinking that it was lifetime and growing old together and you're going to be together, um, all the time. And, uh, you know, but then when that didn't happen, so what does it mean now? And what is, you know, how do you love your stepchild? And, and there's just a bunch of new questions mm-hmm. about what love is. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, um, what the role of my my wife Angie and I talk about this all the time is the fact that we love each other and we're happy with each other and we care about each other but how does to hold that and at the same time say you know what happened wasn't right mm-hmm. and that the fact that we're together doesn't make up for everything we went through right yeah because a lot of people have that kind of relational math that they try to pull on you which is to say well everything turned out okay mm-hmm. it's like oh man no I mean you know, that's not the way that we had wanted it to go. Yeah. Although we love each other. So how can you hold those two things that seem to be opposite? Like, um, to me, I think it's pretty childish to think that, oh, this will all make it better. Mm. And it does make it better. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that is not some cosmic justification for for things that went or went the way you didn't want them to go. So that all things happen for a reason is not not how you see it at all. It's like this was fucked up, and I really right. like this too. <laughs> right. And the fact that I'm in that I love and and love again, and uh, you know, trying to figure out a relatively new relationship. Um, you know, it's a couple of years, but yet both of us were married before and we're both very family centered and come from cultures that are, that are very family, uh, centered. And mm-hmm. it feels a lot of times that like we've been together a lot longer than we have, mm-hmm. but yet the reality is that we haven't. So kind of, how do you, how do you negotiate these kind of new manifestations of, uh, um, of what love is or what can, what it can be? And that's, that's, that's what I wrestle with a lot, yeah. philosophically a lot. How do you show up as loving? Well, I think, you know, being uh, honest about the struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Honesty. Yeah. Being honest that it's difficult. Being honest about disappointment. You know, being able to say, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in, in how things went. Um, disappointed, missing time with my kids, those kinds of things. I think also taking kind of a developmental perspective on the whole thing and, and, you know, that there's a lot of this story still left to be written. So, you know, that's, you know, 
people need me to uh, to love them mm-hmm. through this whole thing and love myself through this whole thing. Uh, and there's still a lot to be to be said. So I think that's that's to me. I think that's the that's the challenge. Is how do you stay stay engaged, uh, even though there've been a lot of times when, you know, especially initially where I was like, man, I I don't even know. I don't even know that I want to do this. Yeah. Does it feel like, I hear some people say love is work, but not work that you don't like doing. Yeah. It's like your favorite job, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the career you chose. Does that resonate for you? (laughs) Well, I'm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it resonates in some ways. In some ways, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other ways, you know, to say, you know, the reality, I think, is that you can love another person as much as you want, and but they still have a decision to make whether or not they want to be in that relationship with yeah. you. And there's, there's nothing really that you can do to control that in someone else, which is unnerving. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think it, it kind of is work. I think I have to work not to get complacent, not to get, not to let negativity drag me down, not to, um, not to get distracted from my relationship. Yeah. Um, and, and by that, I just mean work, you know, and, uh, even raising kids sometimes can pull you apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's not always like a great team effort. Sometimes the kids are working very hard to to uh, to get your attention at yeah. different times, and that can be uh, that can be challenging. It sounds like it's work in the Georgia sense, where it's like right to work, and somebody can fire you. <laughs> <laughs> You can be fired even if you're doing the best possible job. And also it's vulnerable. Like you don't, it's, you don't have control at all over anything but your part. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And you just can hear that and you can hear that and you can hear that. Um, like I know I heard that and I realized that intellectually as a therapist, mm-hmm. I've gone mm-hmm. through that with other people yeah. and all these kinds of things. But when it happens to you is when you're like, Oh shit, this is what I've been talking about. Like yeah. this, that, that, um, that, you know, it, it takes two to be in a relationship, but it only takes one to end it. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is, is also, you know, there are, there are endings and, you know, I have to figure out how to raise children in concert uh, with, you know, this person who I've divorced from. Mm-hmm. And I think those, that has been a challenge. But again, the whole point is the love for my children is more important than, than anything else. And I know that the degree to which that I engage in conflict with their mother is going to hurt them. Mm. Yeah. And so I have to be aware to to truly love my kids. I have to find a way to make this work and to negotiate some good boundaries and to just make it, uh, you know, to to show my love for them because they don't otherwise be indulgent. I mean, I could be nasty, but then how is that going to help them? Right. 
So that to me is probably, you know, a big manifestation of love is, is not necessarily doing what, what you feel like would feel better for you, mm, but, mm-hmm. but you know, keeping their needs in mind as you, as you move forward. And despite frustrations and anger, whatever, you just, what's best for the kids. Prioritizing the need of the people under your care or within your right. care. Yeah. Right. So That's for you, the way you describe it, love in this familial relational context is more salient than this theoretical concept of love that you maybe once had when you were younger, where it's like, I have this ideal of love versus I have this practical lived experience of love. Yeah. Yes. And it took me in places I didn't even think, mm-hmm. you know, where I would be. Um, so yeah, I mean the ideal romanticized notions of, um, of love and what it was supposed to be like. And, and, uh, you know, those things turned out not to be that way. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that's the way that it has, I have lived it as opposed to the way I thought it was going to go. Absolutely. What about more systemically? So we're stepping up one level. What would the world be like if it loved you, if it loved Latino men who are married, come from working class families who are immigrant, like what would this world be like as a system? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that in some ways it's weird to be Latino because people do love a lot of things about about us Mm, Um, like what you know food you know language i mean there's a lot of parts that Mm -hmm. people want to come in and take Mm. i think the world would be different if you could kind of if people were genuinely interested in in in, uh getting not only just getting to know people but then also considering alternative ways of doing things and that maybe people from other cultures do things differently, but that might be better. Mm-hmm. Or it might be more enjoyable um, than the norm, Got which it. is the way that they're doing things. So I think I think love would include seeing the strengths, mm. uh, the amazing, amazing resilience and strength yeah. that is is in there, uh, rather than either the superficial. Um, aspects or, or, you know, um, or, or, uh, stopping at some, at some stereotypes. And so I think that that would be, what are some of those strengths that love would like a loving world would enlighten or be able to see? Well, I think, you know, the notion of um, self-sacrifice, not like extremes, pathological self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. but just the, you know, okay. the really putting the needs of the family or the people that you love, um, really considering those needs mm-hmm. um, out, uh, as, in, as, as very important and probably part of like ethical decision making. Yeah. Um, that would be cool, uh, you know, uh, if people could see that. Uh, an emphasis on being close and personal 
um, and trying to, to really interact with people rather than the kind of surface, how you doing in the mm-hmm. hallway kind of deal, you know, sitting down with people and really getting to know them and being close to them and, and trying to, trying to not be so disposable mm. in the interactions that we have. That's um, powerful. With, disposable. Yeah. Ooh. I, I do feel that, that, uh, so I think there is a strain of pragmatism that 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 kind of filters through white uh, European cultures to where kind of pick and choose what works, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so you can just kind of take and yeah. use something for your ends and then kind of walk away from it, hmm. uh, which is anti the way I was raised, which is that you know you don't get to i mean you get the whole thing you You take the good the bad the ugly and the great (laughs) yeah yeah you don't you don't get to do that and i I have noticed that in in friendships and advising relationships and stuff too just kind of like you know once the thing is done um you know it's been interesting to me to watch some of the people who are done Mm mm-hmm and i was thinking oh yeah we're gonna you know engage in this like lifelong career-long mentoring, you know, I'll just kind of see how you're doing. And then, but nope, they're out. Why? Well, they got what they wanted. So mm. it, it's 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 bizarre. But yet while they were in the moment, they were, you know, very engaged and stuff. So I guess that's one of the things, this, this idea of relationships is not disposable, is not time-limited, and not necessarily pragmatic to what can I get from you out of this? Mm. What, what, you know that there isn't an agenda. So to me, I think accepting that and seeing that as a strength, because I think this whole piecemeal, you know, taking parts of things, I think ends up leaving people feeling kind of empty because they get what they want, but they don't necessarily get like a full experience. That is so, that is so, when you said that, I mean, it just opened something up for me. That is real. It was really powerful to me because there's a lack of intimacy. Yeah. And as you were naming that, I was thinking about the ways in which I do that, the ways I've experienced other people is doing that. And it for me, it goes back to what you were describing when you were talking about love. It's hella vulnerable to be right. that connected to someone and to take the whole thing, the whole person, to the whole experience the compartments of it seem so much easier to manage and control. And when you go for the whole, you don't know what you're going to get. You're really leaving yourself open to it. And you're saying that there's a strength in that and being open to the whole thing, the whole person, the whole experience that the way most of us are socialized in the U S in particular in this white standard of living is that no, this is, the thing that's valuable out of that whole context. So go for that and then get out. Right. And, and during the time, it may not look very mm-hmm. different. It's just mm-hmm. it, as it endures or does not endure, then you realize like, whoa, I thought we were doing something different. Yeah. I thought we were doing, I thought we were doing this thing where, you know, uh, like, uh, it's more of a connectedness thing. And, and, and nope, it turns out that no, you know, I got, I got this thing, yeah. but it feels in the moment pretty identical. 
So, you know, in terms of the intimacy, I would just say to you, it would be intimacy without, um, without an agenda or without a, a, an expectation that of a product, mm. you know, mm-hmm. when you can kind of wrap it all up and say, this is what I want from my interactions with you. Uh, and that's it. Well, I think some of it you may miss a whole lot, um, which is not to say you shouldn't have boundaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't mean anything goes, but I just mean that just kind of saying, you know, I'm going to be uh, working with you. I'm going to be your friend for the next three or four years. And then that's it. Mm. Um, you know, once I get what I need, that, that seems artificial. So yeah. for example, my own advisor, I'm still friends with him. And, you know, when he took me on, you know, I wish I could have given him a consent form and said, look, this is this is for the rest of my career. Yeah. Because, you know, um, I'm not I'm not going to do this and, and graduate and then and then do it. So I, I talked to him now. It's a lot less than I used to, but we're still connected. We're still friends. And, you know, I still care about him. But I didn't sign up again for this kind of time limited um, trial period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, and I think he's been, uh, he likes that. Yeah. I think he likes that about me, which is his openness to, um, you know, uh, to the way things are, which I think is more like, you know, familial relationships and good or bad, you're kind of stuck with each other. Yeah. Wow. Any other things that you think the world would be like, any ways you would see it being differently if it loved you? All of who you are. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I uh, I am very involved with the National Latino Psych Association, and and, and uh, I'm one of the past presidents. Mm-hmm. And like, every time we have an interaction with that group, it just strikes me how different those interactions are than anything else I do. We had like a video conference uh, yesterday, and it was just warmth, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, and people really relating to each other, listening to each other, caring about each other. I mean, it was ridiculous to the point where people said, hey, why don't we schedule another conference in like two weeks? <laughs> they were like, I want more of this. <laughs> so I think that those type of lifelong relationships that where you kind of see people through to, you know, with what's going on and that there's connections and it's not all necessarily about business and agendas and, and, uh, it's more free form, which can be frustrating because what are we doing right now? But, but there, it's more of a relational thing as opposed to walking into a faculty meeting, which is pointless and there's an agenda, and, you know, and, and stuff that could have been sent in an email, but yet somehow you spend, uh, two hours. Two hours just going <laughs> over this stuff. The, the big tragedy of it all, uh, which I've, I've learned from some of my consulting work, the big tragedy of all of it is that nobody's happy in the system. Mm. So keep doing these dumb meetings and these, this, these things. Just keep doing it because that's what you have to do. But like I keep asking people, what would happen if you really enjoyed your job? What would happen if you were... You know, like you say, if, if everybody kind of at work was was free to be who they are mm-hmm. and, and uh, actually get to know each other. And if you were freed from these ridiculous things that you keep doing that don't really serve a purpose. But you have to do. 
Yeah. I'm thinking that they serve a purpose for some people. You know, like some people need that structure, that control, that organization. And for those few people, it's like, oh, this is what I came for. This is what I got. And it's over. But most people end up feeling like this was a waste of damn time. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually, having spoken to a lot of people in different organizations, I've yet to find that person who really loves these people, <laughs> loves the meetings. I think everyone hates them, but some people see them as necessary. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have yet to find that person who is, uh, you know, fulfilled through through meetings. Um, <laughs> because in the modern day, uh, you know, we have so much info and we have access to information almost constantly that, like, the whole idea of getting together once a week to get information is so out, outdated. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, you don't learn anything new no. because it, you've been bombarded with everything for the last week. So... I don't know. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. So I think if people, uh, if people really loved um, me and as a Latin person and, and a person an immigrant and all these kinds of things, I think it would be to get rid of some of the unnecessary formal mm. aspects of interactions, which which don't facilitate connection, but in fact prevent connection from happening. Got it. What identities and others do you sometimes struggle to love? Uh, well, uh, that was a deep sigh. <laughs> yeah, I think I, 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 uh, I think the people that I've had the the hardest time with are those people who are very self uh, self involved, self absorbed. Uh, you can go to one pathological end and say it's narcissist. But the other end would be who basically their needs are more important than um, than anything else mm. and any other consideration. It's about them. And if, if you throw in a little being a little dramatic on top of all that, I really struggle to gotcha. um, to to connect and, and love that because um, it just seems really anti uh, what I want to do. Um, with my life Mm -hmm. and that constantly knowing that it is not just about me. So, you know, I really, I struggle with, um, which is probably not that big of a revelation. Most people struggle with narcissistic people, Mm -hmm. but, Mm -hmm. um, I would say self-centered, self-involved people who don't consider the needs of the groups. Mm -hmm. Um, people don't think through their decisions and seeing what impact their behavior has on other people. I think, um, Angie and I talked about this concretely the other day. She was she had to do a presentation, but the presenter in front of her took up all the time. Oh yes! Oh my gosh! And that is so self. I, I, right there, I wasn't feeling any love. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's it's selfish, and you haven't thought through. You know, if you do that, what impact will it have on the other person? Mm-hmm. And so I think those are the folks that I have trouble. Um, appreciating their special <laughs> gifts. <laughs> I wonder, do you find though? This is this is something that I've been thinking about more conceptually. Do you find that because your whole identity is around giving, that that is who is going to come for you? Like, hey, since you're giving and it's all about me, I'm going to show up for taking. 
Yeah, yeah, I've been super burned with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, when you meet someone who uh, um, is sees the opportunity um, and can really take advantage of, of that, I think that's a lesson I've learned the hard way. So just being very knowing that that's my tendency and then being pretty selective about who comes asking and Mm -hmm. looking for, for, um, you know, any kind of warning signs of someone who's really trying to, to use you. So that's more, well, that's true professionally, but also personally, Mm -hmm. just if, if you have an orientation towards giving, then if you get with, with people who, who want to, who just want to drain you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of times, even in that example I told you about with, with Angie, it's, it's the idea that other people will regulate, regulate themselves. Yeah. Will not not think to run over and not take your time and not to, you know, it doesn't make any sense to, to, uh, to kill the thing you're feeding off of. Mm -hmm. But there are people who are super destructive and, I think they might they might understand that they can find they're really keen on finding people after they destroy the one that's currently right. the source. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so unfortunately had to learn that one pretty much the hard way personally. Um, we so, all learn it the hard way. <laughs> there's no easy way to learn that. myself noticing who the givers are and asking for as little as possible and that always that doesn't always serve you either but it's it's like a oh I know that you've probably extended yourself already so I'll just try to figure out a way to handle it on my own so that I don't burn you out knowing that it probably wouldn't be me that would be the burning out but I just function in that way that's true I mean you know uh, you may develop an overly cautious way of interacting with people, and especially when if you're a giver, broadly speaking, and then you're in a relationship with another giver, uh, that you, both of you ironically may end up not relying on each other because mm-hmm. you, you don't want to overburden that person. But at the same time, uh, there there's you know there can be give and take, mm-hmm. so it doesn't have to be all or nothing. But yeah, I think. Uh, I think you've described it as introversion. <laughs> I've described it as introversion as well. But I would just say that then I just, I limit, um, limit those opportunities. I'm very giving with my family, mm-hmm. with my students. I'm very giving with my time professionally. But then I also, after that, it's just, you know, it's super guarded. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't have access um, because I don't know what they're going to do with Mhm. Well, I have one more question. Okay. What do you love most about you? 
Why does everyone laugh when I ask that question? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, I guess I, I love the willingness to try to learn and, and, and do, uh, do the right thing, no matter, you know, how old and, and established I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. Uh, my my flexibility and kind of adaptability and survive um, my ability to survive some things. Mm-hmm. I think I appreciate. Um, Do you appreciate it and resent it sometimes? I asked someone else that question. Hmm. To to survive. To that you that you have had to hone that ability. Yes, I mean. You know, I have two thoughts about it. One is, yeah, I resent the fact that um, that I've had to go through and learn and learn some tough lessons in life. On the other side, you know, there's also this narrative to, you know, given the way that I was raised and the father that I had, um, some of this stuff is inevitable. Um, just not to blame him completely, but, you know... When I think back on it, when I look at how my kids are being raised and, and the way that they are being treated, um, I just think, shit, there is no wonder that I had the issues that I had. Mm. Now, I've been willing to work on them. So mm-hmm. if you want to say if that's one thing I love about myself is, you know, commit myself to therapy, yeah. self-improvement, and really trying to take a look at some of those things. Uh, so that was that's good. Um but I think in some ways, you know, I think, God, you know, when I think back on who my father was and the way he did what he did, um, I, I think, you know, I really didn't have much of a chance in terms of so some of these ideals that I thought were, were going to happen. There was a lot of issues that I needed mm-hmm. to work out. And hopefully I am diligently doing that. But now, but, you know, when I was younger, you know, probably thought that, it was immune to that stuff. Gotcha. It's not, wasn't the case. Being uh, immune to being human and having to deal with the full range of the human experience or immune to something specific? Yeah, I, th- I think, yes, kind of um, immune to, to the long uh, lasting effects of, of, of living with someone. So, you know, it's probably not a surprise to, to hear that my father was, you know, class A narcissist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I think that, um, you know, living, living the, the kind of the legacy of being raised in a family where you had a narcissist and, and then my mother was completely the giver and the protector. Yeah. And so this split, was was difficult and then you know try to bring that out into the real world and in into relationships and stuff so um i think immune from that those things wouldn't eventually manifest themselves somehow right uh, for me in terms of the people that i would choose to be in relationships with and stuff like that so uh you know like i said i feel feeling um a little older um and maybe that not too late to learn or change. So hopefully, when it um, sounds like need me too. So I yeah, will. it sounds like there there's a real commitment there to 
learning about yourself to self-awareness to growing that is amazing and that you love about yourself, but also the fact that you can bounce back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from stuff I never thought. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a professor, as you've probably gotten a, a window into being a professor, is also in, super encouraging for you to um, uh, to be self-centered and absorbed with yourself. Yeah. So, like, when I have to write for the umpteenth time these reports about how great I am, how many times I've been cited and that kind of stuff, it does lead to this kind of... Um, self-involvement that mm-hmm. I don't like. And mm-hmm. so one of the things I started doing is doing a lot of community service, um, working, giving away psychology, seeing a lot of undocumented folks. And and just to counter that, because the academy is so, has this culture of like self-absorption yeah. that, that, that you can go and kind of lose who you are. And um, in, in yourself, in these numbers and all this stuff, and so I've really found that what I need to do to stay sane is is to be grounded in in community work and things other than than how many times I got cited or mm-hmm. how many awards I get or all that because that just ultimately it's again it's about me me me. So being able to use the words give psychology away to be of service and in service and in community with people helps you and it's something you love about yourself as well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. This is a good place to end. Thank you so much for um, spending this hour with me and sharing your life. Well, you know, uh, thank you for, for asking me and, and, uh, you know, I appreciate everything you're doing and, uh, you know, I'm very proud of you and, and, and all the things that you're doing and you, uh, you're out there making a difference, which, you know, is so cool. <laughs> I'm trying. Thank you for joining us to connect and contribute. Go to howtolovehuman.com for more episodes. Find Dr. Candace Nicole on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you like the show, leave a five-star review. Thank you and see you next week.